Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Friggin, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and uh, Bruce Backman away on assignment this week. And what a week it has been. It's crunch time for the Democrats. And what I mean is this is this coming week is it, essentially. Can anyone catch Bernie, the burn train, and... What we have is potentially Biden's last stand in South Carolina coming up, and he got a big boost. Uh, that's big news. Big, uh, very messy, extremely messy debate uh, this week. I mean, extraordinarily messy in South Carolina. Uh, just an absolute disaster of a debate as far as I can tell. Uh, you have the big APAC conference coming up. CPAC is actually going on right now, which is the conservative public action conference uh, that is put on by the American Conservative Union. And uh, that is going to be interesting. The president will be speaking there. Vice President Pence will be speaking at APAC, uh, which is next week. And Israeli elections, the elections in Israel coming up on Monday, uh, March the 2nd. The extraordinary three elections in a row, and could we be headed to a fourth? We'll look at those polls, and it looks like we probably will be headed to that fourth election uh, based on what essentially is, looks like a stalemate. <coughs> Excuse me. So just an extraordinary week in politics, extraordinary week just all around in Washington. The coronavirus is now rattling the administration and Congress, and we had uh, just the second time just the second time in the Trump presidency that he appeared at the podium in the White House press briefing room, which was just last night. Uh, quite incredible uh, scene. Now, the president had, does have a, a knack for upstaging the Democratic candidates. He goes to the places where they're primary. He went out to Las Vegas during their debate. He was uh, there for in the run-up to the Nevada primaries or Nevada primaries. Uh, he is going to South Carolina for a rally with, for the South Carolina primary. He went to Iowa. He went to New Hampshire. Every place that the Democrats are voting, the president goes. And last night, there were a bunch of town hall meetings uh, that were, cut, were supposed to be in prime time. So he gave a press conference and started it late and kind of ran into it, which is, I think, clever gamesmanship. I, I don't know that's uh, at all inappropriate, but... You know, right after South Carolina is Super Tuesday, which is which is here, which is this Tuesday, March the 3rd. So it's uh, quite an incredible week of politics, incredible week that has been, incredible week that will be. And uh, who knows, will we be well on the way to knowing who is going to be the Democratic nominee to face Donald Trump? The conventional wisdom now says it's going to be Bernie Sanders, that Bernie is going to be too far ahead at this point. The Moderates are still in there. In the moderate camp, essentially, you have Biden, Buttigieg, Klobuchar, and Bloomberg. Tom Steyer, more of a moderate than Bernie. I'm not sure if he's entirely moderate. So you got five candidates essentially change, uh, sharing that anti-Bernie wing and then anti-Bernie vote. Does anybody else remind it of 2016 when the Republicans had their primary and everybody was urging the other one to get out so they could take Donald Trump one-on-one -on -one. if we could just get him one-on-one -on -one. if we could just me against him if it's just me against him then 
will beat the guy. And that seems to be the case that some people are making for Bernie Sanders, that they should be able to take him on. But who's the person who's supposed to get out? It's uh, kind of unclear. Uh, Bloomberg has money, but he's wounded by his debate performance. Obviously, that's not going to that's not going to change uh, either. Biden has his status. Now, if he if he has a blowout in South Carolina, he clearly is going to stay in. He's not going anywhere. But how does he do in the Super Tuesday states? Because he's not on the air. He's not advertising. He doesn't have much of a campaign. But he definitely has the name recognition and the stature. Uh, Buttigieg, it's hard to understand how to see the rationale right now. Um, and clearly he and Amy Klobuchar do not like each other. And there's no incentive for either one of them to drop out on behalf of the other. So that is uh, the big challenge right? that we see right now for them. So who in the moderate lane will go ahead and go ahead and take that plunge? and essentially clear the field for the other. Hard to know exactly what's going to happen, and that's what makes politics so exciting. Uh, So Joe Biden got a huge boost, a massive boost, the boost he was looking for, particularly with regard to African-American voters. In James Clyburn, the the dean, the House Majority Whip, the the dean of the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, a long, long time congressman, public servant, and fixture in South Carolina politics, and James, Cly- James Clyburn goes out there and decides he's going to go all in for Joe Biden. And he is going to uh, essentially say that Joe Biden is the guy to stand up to Bernie Sanders. Very clear. He didn't like, doesn't like Bernie Sanders, doesn't think Bernie Sanders will be a good person at the top of the ticket. And that's very kind of clear from the South Carolina debate that a lot of other Democrats think the same. Although, you know, the anti-establishment feeling is very, very strong these days. And that is propelling uh, Bernie in a similar way to where Trump was propelled in 2016. And Clyburn made similarities to 1972. Now, most of us are not going to reach back. Even if we were around, we don't necessarily are thinking of 1972 in politics. But that was Richard Nixon against George McGovern. Nixon carried 49 states. It was a total wipeout at every level for Democrats. And, you know, Pete Buttigieg made the case during the debate that, you know, the Democrats will lose the House under Bernie. They'll lose the White House because Bernie will lose to President Trump. They won't take back the Senate and it'll be a wipeout because having a socialist at the top of the ticket is just not palatable to many Americans. I'll I'll just say that again. I know. That people disagree. Bernie's unconventional. He is what to do it. But the difference between Bernie and President Trump is that President Trump did not carry a strong ideological briefcase into his uh, into his election. He did, was willing to be what the party wanted to be. He has core beliefs. Uh, certainly, America First being a core belief. Immigration was a core belief. Uh, but those are in tune with the with a lot of the Demo- of the Republican electorate. They're not in, the trade. Uh, trade issues and the foreign on the foreign policy issues were not, but those issues are there. But the Bernie issues, the deeply ingrained socialism, Medicare for all, free college, free this, free that, free everything. That is not something, and he's unwilling to change his labels. Trump was willing to shed the labels, call me whatever you want. I'm the guy who's going to fix all the mess. 
Bernie is just not he you know part of it is his consistency consistency over the years the guy just doesn't change and is he is who he is and I think that authenticity you know might be uh, is very attractive but 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 can Bernie be the guy who is going to deliver the for who is going to deliver for Democrats up and down the ticket. And where Democrats have done well is suburban districts. Uh, suburban districts over uh, where they did well in 2018 is suburban districts throughout the country, not just in the Northeast, uh, where they've kind of wiped out Republicans uh, in many cases, but also Orange County, California, in Texas, in uh, place in Virginia, some of these changing suburbs where they have dominated and they will continue. Uh, they might they they looks like they will. They're poised to continue to dominate. But that, you know, 40 seat swing is not going to happen if the if the party goes far, far to the left. And a lot of people are, are saying that now what happens now? So let's just say Biden wins in South Carolina. He stays in Bloomberg's still there. Uh, and he's not on the ballot in South Carolina, so he's not getting any bounce from that, uh, from anything he might may or may not do. Uh, he acquitted himself okay in the debate. I mean, the one... Let's go to the debate for a second. Uh, it, to call this a, a actual structured debate, this is the South Carolina debate that just happened. It, it is... It's just an affront to actual debates. Uh, the moderators just were unable to do it. And the rules seem to have been if I speak a lot and I speak on top of everybody, it's fine. They're going to let me keep speaking. And that's essentially what happened. Uh, everybody just decided to raise their voice. I was intrigued by Bernie being uh, one of the oldest guys there. He's clearly one of the loudest, which is very interesting. Uh, talking over Pete Buttigieg pretty much extensively. Uh, talking over Tom Steyer. Talking over Mike Bloomberg. Hard for anybody to get a word in edgewise. The real thing that puzzled me about this debate is Elizabeth Warren's insistence after scoring a lot of points and and really beating beating uh, down Mike Bloomberg. May, that might have been the Chris Christie, Marco Rubio moment of the 2020 race. 2016 in the debate, Chris Christie took on Marco Rubio and essentially killed him Uh and it kind of destroyed his candidacy where Marco Rubio was kind of looking, you know, kind of the, for this. He'll be everybody's second choice, then become everybody's third choice. But uh, Chris Christie really cut him down to size pretty much after he had no chance of winning. And that's kind of the Elizabeth Warren situation. Uh, her competition on the left is really Bernie Sanders. And for whatever reason, she has this non-aggression pact with him. And maybe they have a deal for vice presidency. Who knows what it is? But she has really refused to go after him. She's refused to take him on and instead focused her fire again on Mike Bloomberg, even on issues he has said that he is that he's kind of right on the other end. He is for the for the women. But it's bizarre from a campaign strategies. You're in this race ostensibly to be president. And she doesn't look like she's playing to be president because she's not going after where the the candidate that she needs to go after. Everybody else has their folk, their fire focused on Bernie and she refuses to do so and maybe it shows because she didn't uh, once again do all that well in the Nevada caucuses uh, 
certainly not when she was a one-time frontrunner and certainly not commensurate with that. So it was a little bit surprising there. And But just back and forth, I mean, Pete Buttigieg had some good lines. The problem is he is not translating any of these good lines into actual votes. And, you know, people, you know, Bernie had this moment praising Castro. You know, this is the old Mussolini had the trains run on time. Castro... Uh, Castro taught, you know, made people literate. He had literacy programs. In addition to killing people, he killed people, but he also taught people how to read. Beautiful. Uh, I think Florida is done for, for the Democrats right now. I mean, it's not just Cubans, remember, who don't like socialism and communism. It's all it's Nicaraguans who have moved here. It's all many Latin Americans who have who have moved to the United States because they want a free society, because they don't want a socialist society. Bernie doesn't seem to realize that. He's unapologetic about his praise. he got to praise Castro. At the same time, of course, with the blind spot, Bernie has no problem going after APAC, saying he will not appear at the APAC policy conference in D.C. coming up this week because APAC gives a platform to racists and bigots. I don't know if he said that exactly, or racism and nationalism, but he did in the debate call Bibi Netanyahu a reactionary racist, which is pretty incredible from a guy who counts Linda Sarsour and Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib amongst his supporters, <laughs> who they themselves have no problem when they say, you know, when talking about in anti-Semitic tropes about Jewish Americans. What about that platform? What about that platform? And, of course, you know, he couches this, oh, well, we need to secure the state of Israel. I lived there. I was on a kibbutz. But we also need to secure the rights of the Palestinians. As if somehow calling Israel's prime minister racist. I don't know if he would apply that to any other prime minister. Calling Israel's prime minister racist and then... And then somehow saying, it's okay, because I lived there. You know, it's this idea that, well, it's okay, I'm Jewish. It's okay, don't worry, I'm, I'm, I'm Jewish. We have to have the rights for the Palestinians. We can call, it's okay. I'm not, I won't go to APAC because they're racists. I can't deal with the Prime Minister of Israel because he's a racist. But it's okay, I'm Jewish. Oh, and the racists, those people who say bad things about Jews, it's okay, because I'm Jewish. That, that seems to be Bernie's attitude. Now, remember, Bernie Sanders is the guy who for years refused to talk about being Jewish. He was talked about how his parents were Polish immigrants. As if the reason that they had come to the United States was because they were Polish and they were driven out of Poland because they were Polish. As if he didn't have relatives who died in the Holocaust, which now becomes something that he talks about. So the angry Bernie, you know, seems to have this idea. But I will say that I was impressed with him taking fire in the debate and then returning fire, essentially, you know, over and over. He talked, essentially kind of mocked everybody because he was the front runner. You know, uh, kind of parried Amy Klobuchar's attacks by saying, hey, I'm, I'm in the lead. What about you type of thing? And uh, brushed off any idea that Russia was helping him in 
the election, which he was briefed on about a month ago, but never told anybody. Of course, he'd never told anybody because it would hurt him politically. Um, so, you know, you, you, Bernie will have a hard time convincing anybody that Trump should be weak on that. And then, of course, they ask him, and this is the big enchilada, as far as I'm concerned about the debate, which is we're a total failure on the part of the moderators and on the part of the other participants. They ask him about his $30 trillion Medicare for all plan. How are you going to pay for it? And Bernie's response essentially was a very flippant, well, how many hours do you have? I can explain it to you, but it's way too long and you really wouldn't understand it. I love that. Too compli- I can explain it to you, but it's too complicated for you. We're going to spend $30 trillion. We're going to essentially make healthcare the biggest part of more than the GDP. And, but we're going to, we'll explain it to you afterward. After I get elected, we'll finally get around to talking about it. And he he really has yet to explain to anybody why this is good for America. You know, Jim Clyburn in endorsing Joe Biden, I thought had a very good line, a very strong line that he said. And he talked about the fact, I think it was his grandson, who said, I don't want stuff for free. I want to be able to afford it. And I think that is the American way, is that Americans don't want to be given handouts. They want to be able to afford the things that cost. And that's a strong, strong ideological statement, a strong repudiation of Bernie Sanders' socialism, is that his idea is that everybody should be given everything and not have to earn anything. And even Democrats find that distasteful and find that doesn't work because it didn't work in the Soviet Union. It didn't work in Cuba. It doesn't work in Venezuela. It doesn't work. It's not a system that works. And there is a strong percentage of not, I'm not sure that everybody is an ideological fellow traveler of Bernie Sanders supporters, but there are a lot of people out there who feel that free is the best. The other thing, of course, is that, and Buttigieg touched on this, is that at one point Bernie's plan was $40 trillion, now it's $30 trillion, then it's $17 trillion. There seems to be nobody holding to account for the numbers that he's looking at. Okay, a couple other things going on. And uh, the president's press conference uh, last night about the coronavirus, clearly a public health emergency, an emerging emergency that is going on out there, a pandemic. Uh, the CDC is out there warning everybody and the medical experts are warning everybody that coronavirus in the U.S. is inevitable. The president actually said it's not inevitable, uh, but it's here. I mean, there's a case in San Francisco that's not tied to anybody who had been traveling to China. So that's clearly going on right now. Uh, it's a scary thing. The mortality rate is 2 to 3%, which is about 20 times higher than the flu or more than 20 times higher than the flu than the flu. And this is not something we should be downplaying. In fact, the administration officials went before Congress and they got grilled by Republicans even, who basically said, you're totally unprepared. You're not giving us any answers about coronavirus. What are you doing? 
I was, you could see what was going on last night. The president put Mike Pence in charge of the coronavirus, which is great because the power of the vice president certainly should is it should be able to get things done. Assuming, you know, that's going to happen. But the one problem I had is not letting the experts kind of stand in there and take the questions. The president decided to take most of the questions. Uh, You could see from the side that he is uncomfortable seating the mic and seating the podium and seating the spotlight. But I think this is something American people really want to hear and be assured by medical experts and infectious disease experts as to what is going on. And... Let's not downplay it. Let's talk about it as a serious threat. Um, and the serious threat that it is. And it's right now, it's an incredibly serious threat to uh, to the world economy as things shut down in China. And I think it would be a threat to president's reelection unless it's it looks like he has a commanding uh, posture. Towards it, And the one thing I think, you know, you could see how the president is always engaged in politics. I think that's partly what makes him such an, a good politician. But they asked him a question about the stock market and his response was, well, did you watch the Democratic debate? Now, I think I thought it was actually a funny line, but if it was meant in all seriousness. Now, number one, factually, the stock market started sliding before the Democratic debate. And I think the Democratic debate was enough to make the personally to make the stock market swoon. But of course, it's just not. It's just not factually true. And, you know, we're in the thing. We're looking for things that are factually true in this case. And that sometimes is a little difficult for this administration to come because they're always spinning and they're always trying to um, make everything political. And that, you know, that happens. Uh, Two more comments before we get to the Israeli election. Uh, Bill Barr drew a line in the sand about or supposedly a line in the sand. Although I don't know, it's probably you know been been wiped away by by wind at this point that the president should not comment on the Roger Stone case and other DOJ cases that are pending. Uh, that is exactly what the president did not do this week. Uh, the judge brought the jury in to see talk about their bias. It seems that even the jurors themselves, those that have spoken publicly, have talked about the foreman as being very fair and equitable. So, uh, and as I pointed out last week, is if. They knew that the juror was biased and didn't object to her. Number one, if they didn't know, you know, if this bias was real, if they didn't know that the jury foreman was uh, going to have it in for Roger Stone because he is a Republican and uh, ally of President Trump, then they should have known. That's bad work. And if they didn't object and they did know, that's even worse work, in my opinion. So you don't always get the do-over on that, although they're asking for one. But the president, of course, has weighed in on that, as Bill Barr told him not to do, and said he would resign if he did. And we'll we'll see, because that doesn't seem to have happened. Um, and uh, the other point here is that the president has um, the president decided to sue the New York Times for an opinion piece. Uh, which is quite extraordinary. I mean, he has a history of litigiousness, and I understand that people want a fighter and somebody to fight for themselves and not sit back all the time, but this concept of suing a um, suing a newspaper for an uh, opinion piece that was written is a little bit, um, well, let's just say slightly unusual. 
from in my in my opinion. Okay, let's go to the Israeli elections and let's look at because uh, by the time we have the show next week, it will be over and we'll ho- we'll pro- hopefully know. Or we might we probably won't know who has a government, but we will hopefully know who uh, you know who won and let's see what we're going. So it's not going to be all that different. I mean, right now. Blue and white and Likud are kind of in this uh, 32, 33, 34 seat band going back and forth uh, in different polls. Uh, the latest poll, um, the latest poll was 32 for Kachova Lavan, 33 for Likud. But the you know a couple days before that, you had Kachova Lavan at 34 and Likud at 33, and it was. Um, the joint list, the Arab list, 14, and I think one of the factors there may be the peace plan, which has uh, uh, essentially some of the Arab villages or cities in the uh, Israeli Arab village, uh, uh, cities in the what's known as the Triangle going into a potential future Palestinian state. I imagine a lot of Israeli Arabs are not interested in that, and they might come out and vote where they didn't hadn't in the past. Labor, Gesher, Meretz, which is the whole Israeli left on there, a joint party, 10 seats between all of them. Uh, that would just be remarkable. The continued collapse of the Israeli left uh, is it would be extraordinary. Yamina, uh, seven seats, again down um, there. Um, that is the amalgamation of several right-wing parties. Uh, UTJ, UTJ had eight seats. That's up one. That's United Torah Judaism. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. They were eight seats. Then they were seven seats because they, they lost one seat by 68 votes, a threshold, uh, last time around. So we will we will see. Shas uh, at eight seats. Israel Beitenu at seven seats. That is down one. Um, I mean, that's essentially those are the only parties that looking like they're going to qualify for the uh, um, Otsma Yudid is is now, you know, is now done. Um, And um, um, I think there's a couple smaller right wing splinter parties also there. Um, So it's kind of uh, it's kind of remarkable you know, what might happen is the exact same thing. We go to new elections in order to have something now. Now, a lot of these parties, like Yamina, like uh, UTJ, like Shas, uh, Shas was predicted to come in at eight seats last time, and they, they exceeded expectations. So everything in this narrow band is possible. All this stuff is possible to happen, and we will see exactly how it shakes out next week. But really, well, the one thing we take, if we add all of this up, is neither side gets to a 61 uh, unless somehow a Victor Lieberman comes off the sidelines with those seven seats or those six seats or those eight seats or those nine seats, depending on how it is, and joins one of the sides. Uh, B.B. Netanyahu being under indictment um, and that trial essentially moving forward because the Knesset is unwilling to give him immunity. I mean, maybe that will change under a new Knesset. It's hard to see that happening with the, with the way this proportion is going along and we don't just we just do not see a big realignment in Israeli politics one would think given some of the extraordinary news the the new peace plan or as i said the legal troubles of the prime minister might have called for some realignment but if anything it seems that the sides have hardened and uh, so we will see coming up uh, next week here on spin class on the Nachum Siegel network see you next week 
Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.